Grab a seat and uh, your Bible. Of course, you always need your Bible. I know that we joke about that. Um, But if you forgot it, we have some in the back. I know it's easy to forget our Bibles. Um, Also, you want to make sure that you have these. And I just printed 50 more, so um, there's plenty back there. But we, uh, in the the back, on the table back there, is this timeline of the kings and the prophets. So this is going to be super, super helpful for you. Um, If you need one, raise your hand and Olivia's back there. She'll grab you one or Brad or if you need it. But there's plenty of back there. They need, Angie needs one up here, if you could, a timeline. So make sure that you have that. Um, that will be helpful to track where we are in, in, in terms of the kings and the prophets and kind of seeing the big picture of everything that's going on. Well, we, we continue tonight in the book of Hosea, and we're in chapter 8. So Hosea chapter 8. And um, we're going to get through chapters 8, 9, and 10 tonight, and then we'll finish the book, Lord willing, next Wednesday night. And it's interesting, Hosea, if, if, if you haven't been tracking with us, that's okay, but the Lord is using the prophet Hosea, and he asked Hosea to do something that's very difficult, didn't he? To go and to marry uh, a prostitute, a harlot. And the whole purpose, he tells us in Hosea 3, is because that is what Israel has done to the Lord, is commit harlotry, commit adultery um, in their relationship with the Lord. And so this prophet is living it out in front of Israel. He's, he's, remember, he's ministering in the northern ten tribes, right? So at this time, Israel is split into Judah, which are the southern two tribes, and then Israel, the northern ten tribes. And so Hosea, he takes back Gomer, his, his wife who, who has gone after other lovers. He purchased her back. And we looked at how that is a picture of Christ, right? Redeeming us out of the slavery of sin. Although we've committed adultery um, against the Lord when we have loved idols. Anything that we say in our heart, I could never live without that. I could never live without Ohio State football, some might say. I don't know who. But, right, whatever in our heart that we say, I just can't do without, that's an idol. And, and, and when we give um, affection to that, we're committing adultery with, against the Lord, he says. And so it's been a time of examining our hearts and asking the Lord to, to reveal, are there idols in, in, in my heart, in my life, Lord, that, that I don't even realize? But uh, last week, we continued um, in chapters, we started chapters 4 and, and we got through 7. And we're looking at um, the Lord talking about the sin of Israel, right? So we, we mentioned, why would Hosea go through this? Why would the Lord have Hosea reiterate it? Like we get the picture of um, adultery. We kind of understand that. Well, can you imagine again if, if Gomer was standing there in the town square, he's, uh, his, Hosea's buying her back from the prostitution that she's given herself to, Right? She's now become a slave to it. And she says, well, I've not really done anything wrong. And yet we do that. We say, Lord, I, eh, that's not really an idol. I don't really need to rid myself of that sin or X, Y, Z, whatever it may be. So the, Lord's, the Lord wants them to recognize sin for what it is. And that's what he's dealing with as we continue chapters 9 and 10 tonight. Um, excuse me, chapters 8 is the sin of Israel, and then chapters 9 through 10, we see the judgment that God brings on Israel um, as a result of their sin. It's interesting. Sunday, or 
I guess not Sunday, Monday was what holiday? Valentine's Day, yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a sweet time to celebrate marriage and to ce- celebrate um, what the Lord did in creating uh, marriage and that institution. And even going through Hosea, right, we're looking at a marriage. We're looking at a, a, a marriage of a, a literal man in, in, in Hosea and Gomer. And, and the Lord's using that marriage relationship to speak to us even today through his word. But marriage in the Bible, it was from the beginning, wasn't it? When God created Adam and Eve, he instituted, created marriage. And then you remember, what was Jesus' first miracle? The wine, when he turned water into wine in, in, in Cana of Galilee at a wedding, marriage. And do you know what the Bible ends with? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Isn't, and isn't it interesting? God lifting up marriage, why? Because the Bible tells us in Ephesians that marriage is a picture of the gospel. See, you might not be married tonight. You might be married tonight. You're not any less if you are married. You're not any more if you, or if you aren't married. You're not any less if you are married. You're not any more of a, of a quote-unquote, like a better Christian or a more favored Christian. Because if you're in Christ, see, you have a groom. And he's perfect. And so just reminding ourselves, thinking about it, right, around Valentine's Day, looking at the Bible, the institution of marriage that God has established, as we're in Hosea, looking at marriage, um, it's just sweet to always think about, be reminded that Christ is your groom, and he's in love with you. And we talked about that last week, about how Israel knew the Lord, but it was just intellectual, right? And it stopped there. There was no relationship, no intimacy with him. And so tonight, we pick it up in chapter 8. And looking at the sin of Israel, and there's this great quote that I meant to share last week, but thankfully, um, I get to share it this week with you because I remembered it. But it's by a pastor named Nate Holdridge. And he says this. And again, the context is as we go back into chapter 8, God is addressing the sin of Israel. Nate Holdridge says, If it is uncomfortable for you to think of God as willing to confront us, in other words, to, to say that's sin and that's wrong. If it's uncomfortable for you to think that, uh, of God as willing to confront us, consider how that discomfort might be good. For those, those who have a God who never offends them, never demands anything of them, or never challenges them, have a fictitious God, one who they've made up to suit their own purposes. You see, and we looked at this last week, but I just want to remind us tonight that as God addresses the sin of the nation of Israel, these ten northern tribes, and as, as, as he convicts us, right, as we're in his word, he's not coming down on us, like just trying to, uh, like a, you know, the picture that you often see is, uh, is a young boy with a magnifying glass, like chasing ants on the sidewalk, trying to burn them up. That's not God's heart. See, but God loves you and so much that he's not willing just to let us uh, go in sin and something that's going to destroy us. So be thankful even as God brings conviction upon us as a body, you as an individual, me as an individual. And it's also interesting to take a step back and to look where the Lord has us as a church, isn't it? We're going through the book of Hosea, but on Sunday mornings we're going through 2 Corinthians. And if you were with us this past Sunday, in chapter 7, we looked at what is true repentance. 
See, God doesn't just, he, he confronts us by showing us our sin, by convicting us lovingly, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But yet, he says it's not just enough to know about sin, but he calls us to repent of it. So let's even apply, don't, don't separate Sunday mornings and, and, and Wednesday nights. I mean, what's the Lord asking us to repent of tonight? You and, and us as a body even. So we pick it up in chapter 8 as, as God continues to address the sin of Israel. And we see here how um, Israel has forsaken the Lord. So in verse 1, he says, Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. So we see in verse 1, there's this alarm that's to be sounded of judgment that's coming. Be warned. No. And he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 through 51, where God said that he would do this. I'll read it um, to you. You're more than welcome to turn there. But Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 through 51. And there the Lord um, said, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and with gladness of heart, for the abundance of everything. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he's destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. From the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. And they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave your grain nor, or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. See, the Lord warned them of this. The Lord told them that judgment would be coming if they forsook God. And now, again, the Lord's saying through Hosea years later, right? Judgment's here. Of course, God is gracious and he gives us, uh, his judgment doesn't necessarily always come right away. Why? Because we know that the Bible tells us that God is giving us an opportunity to repent. And see, God would rather deal with us in the privacy of our own hearts, right? Give us an opportunity to repent before it necessarily is public and a bigger issue. But in, look in verses 2 and 3. He goes on and he says, Israel will cry to me. My God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. Again, we, we talked about last week how when they said we know God, that it was merely intellectual. They knew him, but they don't, didn't really know him, right? And we talked about how that's true. My wife, Olivia, right? I know about her. I know how tall she is. I know that she likes ice cream. I know what her favorite food is. I know her birthday's on Friday. You can wish her happy birthday, right? But, and, and all of you here could know that by just getting to talk with her, spending some time with her, but you don't really know her, right? There's not that experience. There's not that, that deep intimacy that, that we have being married. And that's what God says. They say, I know you, God, but we know that Jesus said, remember, that there will be many on that day who say, Lord, haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we done many miracles in your name, but what did he say to them? I don't know you. And so, do you know tonight, does the Lord know you? 
He's created you, but are you in fellowship with him? Is there that, have you been cleansed by the blood of Christ where now you can come boldly to the throne room of grace and experience that face time with the Lord? Does he know you? Do you know him that way? And also, it reminds us of Titus 1.16, where there we see, it says that they profess to know God, but in their works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. You see, we can even say with our mouth, we can say all the Bible verses, we can come to church, we can put a Christian name tag um, on our Facebook page, or whatever it may be, that we know God, but is that knowledge merely just something that we say? Or do our lives align with that reality? And if our actions, our lives don't align with us, we should examine our lives and, and, and repent of it and turn to really know God. But he goes on in verse 4. He says, They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From, silver, from their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made, and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. See, this is a reference to 1 Kings 12.20. And you, we need to know that, right? That's where Jeroboam the first. When, when he became king of uh, Israel, when, the, when uh, the nation split into two, remember what he did? We talked about this, that he set up two golden calves in the north. And, and what he said is, uh, you don't have to go down to, to Jerusalem and worship how the Lord said that you were to worship. Let these golden calves be God. Just worship here, right? He was being political, uh, he was being savvy in a political way, not wanting the, the people to start going back to to the uh, southern two tribes and, and maybe have some type of alliance with them. Well, that's what the Lord's saying. You set up your kings. You chose your kings, but it wasn't by me. You've made your God, but with your own hands. Workmen made it, but it's not God. It's not God. So you might say that this isn't a big deal, but these kings, they were leading people into sin. And even, even today, right, there's much talk, there's much um, consternation, whether you're on this side of the political um, party of the United States or that side, the opposite side, and how dare you look at me because you're on this side. And we, we can start to follow a, a, a president or a king or, or something like that, someone like that, I should say. But do you know that there's only one king who's truly righteous? And there's only one king who's truly king of kings, and, and that's Christ. And you can follow him. We can follow him. We'll never go astray. But they made these idols. They made these quote-unquote gods. But notice God said, did you see that in verse 6, that it is not God. See, we can make gods. You can make something a god. You, we all worship something or someone. But it's not God. We can call it God. But we can't speak it, things into existence, right? We're not God. We don't create things. But this is completely opposite of what the truth is, right? The Bible tells us that you are made in the image of God. Yet when we say that God cannot do this, or I don't believe in a God who would allow someone to go to hell, or who would say that homosexuality is a sin, or whatever it may be, 
we are making our own God. And see, now when we do that, we're making a God in our image. Look how backwards that is. Because God said that you were made and I, were, I was made in his image. See, and, and if I'm made in his image, then, then I'm a reflection of who he is, right? But see, we don't want to submit to God. We don't want to recognize him as Lord. We don't want to be accountable for sin. So I'll just deny that and then I'll make a quote-unquote God in, in my image, what I want him to be. And it's sad. We miss him. We make gods. Verse 7, he says that they sow to the wind, meaning they sow to vanity. That's, that's what that phrase means. They sow to vanity. Have you ever, I know at least some of the guys here have, or maybe, maybe the girls too, because if my mom was here, this, she'd fall into this category. Have you ever had to go plant grass with a bunch of grass? Seed? I'm not talking like, like a one-by-one-foot section of grass. I mean like plant some grass. And what happens if, when the wind comes and you're trying to toss seed? It just takes it like that, right? It's, it's what, you've, what you've intended to, to plant and to, to give, have uh, birth and, and to have growth, right? It's just swept away. It's, it's empty. It's not there. Well, that's what he's saying. You, you've sown to vanity to the wind. And notice that you'll reap the whirlwind. That there won't ever be any produce. Aliens would swallow it up. That's even a reference to Assyria, right? This idol worship that they turned to and making their own gods, Israel was sowing to vanity. And then in verse 8, he says that Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure. And again, this is speaking of Assyria's invasion and, and the carrying away of Israel. You can go read about it in 2 Kings 17, verses 5 and 6. Uh, is the actual record of that. But in verse 9, he says, For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. So notice the, the word again. Uh, he's still calling out their sin. And he says, This is how far, far my people have fallen. See, normally, <laughs> a, 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 again, the picture of adultery or prostitution Right? That's what he's saying that Israel is doing in going after these other gods. A prostitute is hired by someone to come and to quote-unquote love them, right? To have these sexual relations with, with them. Well, notice here what he's saying is that Israel is a prostitute, but she's not being hired out to others. She's hiring others to come prostitute with her. That's the idea. Well, how do we know that? Jeremiah 2 tells this. Jeremiah 2 verses 23 and 24 how then can you say I'm not polluted? I have gone after the Baals. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are swift dromedary breaking loose in her ways. A wild donkey used, uh, used to the wilderness that sniffs at wind in her desire. In her time of mating, who can turn her away? All those who seek her will not weary themselves in her month they will find her. So then there's that idea, right? It's like this donkey who just wants to go, this animal that just is sniffing at the wind to go uh, after her uh, desires to mate. Interesting, isn't it? Their heart. But in verse 10, he, he expands on this idea, what, what I was referencing before. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them and they shall sorrow a little because the burden of the king 
of princes. See, the Lord compares that, their adultery to the woman who paid others to love her. In Ezekiel 16, verses 31 through 34, the Lord says there, You erected your shrine at the head of every road and built your high places in every street. Yet you were not like a harlot because you scorned payment. You didn't want payment. That's what he's saying. You are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to all harlots, but you made your payments to all your lovers and hired them to come to you from all around your harlotry. You were the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot. In that you gave payment, but no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were the opposite. Do you see the depravity of the people and the picture, the reality of it? That Israel was hiring others to come and, and, and to have uh, what the Lord is saying is adultery with her. Now you might say that's, that's grotesque, right? We would agree that that's wrong. and can't even imagine it. But yet, in ex- examining our own hearts, um, we, we can do this same thing. Well, how so? See, what are you paying in terms of giving up and seeking the love, a love other than the Lord. We can, we can pay in terms of time or, or money, right? The love, the affection maybe of another like on Facebook or another dollar in our bank, rather than spending time with the Lord. Not that those things are wrong. They're, they're necessary, right? We have to work. We're to provide for our families. The Bible tells us. But we can give ourselves completely to it. We're actually paying for it. I mean, you can talk about the pornography industry, right? Paying for that. To come and, 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 and to seek the love of another. Some lifestyle that we're trying to live up to. Whatever God that we go after. It, you know, and let's just be honest. We think that Israel is so far fallen, but let's examine our own lives. He goes on in verse 11 And he says, because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, and they shall return to Egypt. So look again at what he says in verse 12. He says, I've written for them the great things of my law. And isn't that the truth? That the word of God, Psalm 119 says, uh, he calls it wondrous. The wonders of the word of God that is alive, that it speaks to us. That it convicts us. That it's truth. And it reveals to us the Lord. We have his wondrous word. Uh, Israel had his word. He's given them their word. But notice what he says at the end of verse 12, but they considered it a strange thing. And I was thinking about this. Do you know what this would be like to me? I am absolutely horrible at computers. You know, I can turn it on and I can send an email. I can open Excel. I, can, I, can, I know what an HDMI cable is. I figured that out by the amount of monitors that I had to move over the past couple years, um, trying to set things up at home, monitors at home. 
But man, you tell me like something about software or gigabytes or, or megabytes or, or eight, I don't know, megapixels. I have no idea. I, no idea. And see, I, I'm just confounded. Like somebody else, it's completely foreign to me. It's completely strange. Well, that's what Israel, see, they had the word of God. They had his law. Don't just think like the Ten Commandments law or the law of Moses. They had the Pentateuch. They had his word. And yet they considered it a strange thing. It was a strange thing. See, God's word had no place in their life. And it makes me ask the question, what about in America today? See, I, I, I didn't look up the statistics, but think about, and I, I guarantee probably many of us, almost all of us in, in this, uh, here tonight in this sanctuary, I guarantee you, you have more than one Bible in your house. Might even say more than three Bibles in your house. And think about the amount of homes, I, you know, I would say the majority of homes in America have a Bible. But we don't find our home in the Word of God, do we? It's strange to us. It's there, but it's still strange. See, and I think about a home. What is a home? A home is a place where there's safety, isn't it? See, when the Word of God isn't strange to us, when, when we're at home in it, it's a safe place. I can run to it for refuge. I can run to it for the truth from the lies. A home is where I go and um, my, my wife makes dinner or lunch and, and we can have food we get nourishment from. And if, if the word of God, if you find yourself at home in the word of God, right, it's where you run to to get refilled and refreshed. You don't, you don't go to a stranger's house to take a bath or shower to get ready to be cleansed. See, you come to the word of God to be cleansed, don't you? It has the washing effect of the water of the word of God. It's where we find rest. It's where we find our refuge. And ask yourself, be honest tonight, is God's word strange to you? We're not condemning you, but God's, right? He, he wants you to be at home in his word. He wants you to come and just eat of him, right? Just, just man, enjoy him. It's not like some uptight relationship. It's not like I was going to the White House where I have no place. But it's where you'd be, you're comfortable, where you can just let your guard down. God already knows. Are you at home in the word of God? See, he says here that he didn't accept their offerings because there was no obedience. They could go through the motion of, of making a sacrifice or, or, or an offering, but there was no obedience with them. And, and it's interesting that he says um, there, the word didn't accept them. And he, notice he says in verse 13, now I will remember their iniquities and punish their sins. Well, you might say, I thought the Bible says that God won't remember my iniquities, that he won't remember my sins any longer. Well, it does. But you see, he's speaking to two different types of two people. For those who have been Christ, your sins have been paid for. When you've asked Christ to be your Lord and Savior, his blood has cleansed you, has washed you, and, and our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. God chooses to overlook your sin and my sin. But if we refuse to accept the righteousness of Christ, then see, our sins are remembered. 
And, and God's saying that judgment will come. Your sin, I, I, I won't overlook unless you're in Christ. See, Israel had set aside God. Did you see that? This is verse 14. He goes on. I guess you didn't see it because we didn't read it yet. But notice in verse 14, Israel has set aside God for Israel has forgotten his maker. That's what the phrase means. Forgotten, if, you, if you're a note taker, uh, write down set aside. He says, Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah also has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon their cities and it will devour his palaces. So he's for, the Lord says here that Israel, you've forgotten me. And then, so it's not, it, and again, the original meaning of the word is, is that they've set God aside. And remember that Moses warned Israel about this back in Deuteronomy. If you go back and read Deuteronomy, he warns about, do not forget. Do not forget. Do not forget that same word. Do not set God aside. Do not set him aside. You can read, uh, for your reference, Deuteronomy 6.10, Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 and 17, Deuteronomy 9, uh, verses 4 and 7. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, he says this. He says, forgetting is personal neglect of the things that are intellectually believed and a failure to make them central things of family life. See, what he's saying there is that forgetting is not just that, that, that you don't have the knowledge anymore, but forgetting in the sense of setting God aside is when we know something, right? When we know about God, when he's shown us a truth in his word, when, he, when he's asked us to, to go out and to do whatever it is, but our actions don't align with what we know. See, when, when I do that, when I refuse to obey God, I'm setting him aside. I know it, but I've done nothing with it. And that's what Israel had done. They have, all, they, they have the word of God, they have the priest, they have the sacrificial system, right? All pointing to Christ, but they've set him aside. Have my actions, have your actions aligned with what you know? What is, when's the last time that I've been obedient to the Lord in his word? Right? Because it's easy to come to Bible study. It's easy to be here. It's easy to be in devotions and to read or, and to agree with it, Right? I mean, you're here on Wednesday night, so you, most of us would agree with that. But remember what James warned us? Don't be deceived that you're hearers and, and don't apply the word of God. Beware of setting God aside. But look, because they have forgotten God, because they have set him aside, look what they did. Notice at the end of verse 14, it says that they have built temples. So the idea, like big buildings, significance. They have multiplied their fortified cities. So this isn't just a shack or, or this isn't just a couple of houses. A strong city, fortified. So because they have set God aside, what had substance, what had significance, the Lord himself, right? They were trying to replace him by finding bigness in other places. And we can do the same. See, when we set God aside in our life now, Man, I need something to, to, to tell me that I measure up. I need to prove I, I need this job title. I need this family situation. I need the, this number of uh, 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 figures in my bank account. Something to give me significance. And so we go around and, and we try to build, build, build ourselves up, build things up to replace the glory of God. 
the, the, the substance, the matter of God that we've set aside. When God says, notice at the end of verse 14, but I'll set fire upon their cities and they will be devour, uh, devour his palaces. The Lord said that those things will be burned up. And all the, all the meantime, remember, God says that he's stretching out his hand to them, inviting them to come back if they would just repent and turn back to him. Maybe even some of us tonight, right, you've walked with the Lord at one point in your life or you had a closer walk with the Lord, but we've begun to set him aside. And we've, we, we've tried to find significant matter in other places and building towers or, or fortified cities in our lives. When all the meanwhile, God's saying, just come back to me. Enjoy my presence. Repent of those things. Turn from them. They're going to be burned up anyways. So now we get to chapter 9. And we see in chapters 9 and 10 is God's righteous judgment. So he's dealt with Israel. He's, He's shown them their sin, right? That they might return. But notice that judgment will come. So in, in chapter 9, uh, starting off here, judgment, the result of sin and rebellion, he says, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples, for you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. The idea there being men would sleep on their threshing floor where they would um, uh, thresh the difference between the, the grain and, and, and the chaff, the stuff that didn't matter. Uh, and even as they would sleep there, that there would be um, prostitutes that would come down and would lie with them. He's saying, that's what you've done, Israel. Verse 2, the threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them. Their, <clears throat> excuse me, and the new wine shall uh, fail in her. So even here, he says that they're not going to have any more crops or they're going to be fruitless. And isn't that what happens when we set God aside? Isn't that what happens when, when we go after another God? John 15, 5, Jesus said here, there, uh, that I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For with me, without me, you can do nothing. See, if we find our lives fruitless, then it's a good um, time to ask myself, am I abiding in Christ? Am I dwelling in Christ and he in me? Because fruit doesn't have to be produced by struggling or striving, right? That tree is just plugged into the vine. And you just abide in Christ. Man, and f- your life will be fruitful. The, f- the, the, the love of the Lord. There'll be fruit. You'll produce fruit that others can take um, from you, around you. But verse 3, he goes on and he he says that they will not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. It shall be like bread of mourners to them. All who eat eat it shall be defiled, for the bread shall be for their own life. And it shall come into the, excuse me, it shall not come into the house of the Lord. So notice here that the word says that they'll be taken into bondage again. They'll be enslaved again when they're taken away by the Assyrians. They'll return to Egypt. And you can go, you can write down um, Hosea 11.5 where the word actually refers to Assyria as Egypt. But that's what he's saying. God's saying that I will give you over to your desires. And in Assyria, they wouldn't be able to uh, follow the dietary law that the Lord had given them. They wouldn't be able to offer sacrifices anymore. That, that's what he's saying here. 
And remember, we talked about this last week, that God had given them over to their, uh, to their desires to be carried away into these pagan lands where idol worship was so prominent. It's like God said, you know, did you ever, did you ever just like desire so much ice cream and, and finally like you just gave in and maybe it was your kids or maybe it was your husband. Uh, Olivia does this when I want nachos. She just says, okay, well, just eat it then. And they eat so much of it that they just get sick right? And then you're like, I never want, I never want ice cream again. Well, that's what the Lord's saying. With, he said, I'll give you over to this idol worship that you want, and, and, and they had so much of it, they're full, that they never turned to idol worship again. But anyways, they were caught up. Um, they, they couldn't seek the Lord there. The Lord had previously set them free from the bondage, but they, they were given over to it again. But he goes on in verse 5, What will you do in the appointed day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Needles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. In the days of punishment, excuse me, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows. Notice what they're saying. They say, the prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because the greatness of your iniquity and the great enmity, the watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fowler's snare in all his ways, enmity in the house, excuse me, enmity in the house of his God. They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah, and he will remember their iniquities and he will punish their sin. Notice we see here that the word's saying that the time of judgment is about to come upon Israel. Again, they thought for years, well, man, we've been warned about uh, that judgment would come. It's never come. What do we have to worry about? Right? And, and people say that today. Man, God's not returning, or I'll, I'll get my life right one day with the Lord. Remember, the word says that no man or no woman, not even uh, the Son of God, knows the day or the hour when, when the rapture will happen, right? And we'll be caught up with the Lord. God's just waiting, not because he's approving of sin, but he's giving us an opportunity to repent. The Lord has appointed a day of judgment. And today is the day of salvation. If you've never given your life to Christ, tonight's the night. Don't be fooled by saying tomorrow, by saying when I walk out the doors. Man, God's calling you tonight. See, Israel's rejection of the prophets God had sent to them, and they rejected the prophets. Did you catch what they called them in verse 7? Number one, he said that the prophet is a fool, and then he said that the spiritual man, or the man of the spirit, is insane. Now, there's two different takes. Some say that this is talking about the false prophets, because remember, as we were going through Jeremiah, we looked how there were false prophets that were saying, ah, oh, peace, peace, man. Don't worry about this judgment talk. God's a God of love. He's not going to judge anybody, send anybody uh, into captivity. Don't forget that, man. Right? So some are say that, that, that that's what uh, the, the prophet being called a fool and the spiritual man insane, speaking of the false prophets. But I'm, on, I'm of the belief, and, and you can be a Berean and, uh, you know, go study this yourself, that it's talking here of this is what, how uh, Israel was, was responding to the prophet of God and the spiritual person at that time who was still seeking the Lord. They called them a fool, this, or they said that they were literally insane. 
Notice, too, the spiritual man um, is, is insane as well, but that should actually be translated mad or delirious. See, they rejected even those who were still genuinely seeking God. And that, that might be happening to you by a family member, by a friend. Man, you're, you're sharing the gospel, you're sharing the truth of God's word, and they say, come on, that stuff, you really believe in that? The flood, Noah's ark, the son of God dying on a cross? You're insane, that stuff's crazy. Well, if that's you, and you know, I take comfort in this. You know that Jesus was also called the same thing? In John 15, or excuse me, John 10, 20, there they, they said, and many of them said, speaking of Jesus, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? See, Israel had set aside God. They've set him aside. They've forgotten him. And now even the man or the woman that are still walking and seeking God, they're calling them a fool and delirious and insane. The rejection of God has led to the rejection of the man or the woman of God. Notice, this, again, the state of Israel, if you take a step back and look, this didn't happen in a day. They didn't fall to the state overnight, but it was a slow decay. It was a slow decay in, in, in a nation over many, many years. And that's how it happens in our life, right? A slow decay. I would never set God aside like that. I would never say that the, the, the man or the woman of God who want to go to church on a Wednesday night and, and hear the word of God, that they're insane or they're mad or delirious. I, I would never say that about Jesus, that he's a madman. Well, just beware. Man, small compromises, small compromises add up. And over time, will take us in a place where we said we'd never be. Don't even let the small compromises in. Because the Lord says that in verse 9 that they're deeply corrupted. They're deeply corrupted, as in the days of Gibeah. And this is a reference to, to Judges 19, where a Levite stayed in the city of Gibeah, and the city came wanting him, meaning they wanted to have homosexual relationships with him. Uh, but they killed the concubine instead. See, the corruption of you and I, the corruption of man is deep within the heart. And God doesn't offer a reformation or, or, or to, to um, just to fix up our old heart, right? But he says that you must be born again. Sin, our sin, man, we're deeply corrupted outside of Christ. So we must be born again. And again, that's the state. Israel, they, they needed to turn to the Lord. In verse 10, he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the on the fig tree uh, in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and they separated themselves to shame and they became an abomination like the thing they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No bird, or excuse me, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Just as I saw Ephraim like Tyree planted in a pleasant place, so Ephraim I will bring out his children to the murderer. So we see here 
that, the re- that in verse 10, that the Lord rejoiced over Israel as a man or a woman. Think about this. If you're walking through the desert, dry, thirsty, dishonor water wasn't a thing back then, or you couldn't have a, a, a granola pouch with you, and you, you just discover these wild grapes, right? Something that you could come and that you could eat from that, that had life in it. And you would rejoice. That's what the Lord's saying Israel was like to him when he found them in the wilderness. He rejoiced over them. And isn't that, you know, isn't that sweet to know that that's what the word does to, to us when he finds us in the desert, right? And, and he rejoices over us that, that, that we're now his. But notice he said he, he rejoiced to them, but they went to Baal Peor and they separated themselves to shame. That's a reference to Numbers 25. That's Numbers 25 where there was uh, idol worship was brought in and that idol worship was even in the form of sexual immorality. They gave themselves over to it. They, they rejected the Lord. And did you see what he says at the end of verse 10 that they became an abomination like the thing they loved? Do you know that you and I will become like the thing that you worship? We become like the things that we worship. Well, how do I know that? Because the Bible tells you that. In Psalm 115.8, there we read, those who make them, speaking of an idol, are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Psalm 135, we see there, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they uh, do not hear, nor do... Is there any breath in their mouths? Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. See, if we start to worship some idol, some other god, right? We, we reference an idol as anything that we, we say that we could not live without. We'll become like that thing. And, and sure, we, have, we, we, we still have eyes or we still have ears per se or hands, but you'll become blind. You'll become hardened to the word of God. You won't hear anymore. You won't really, you will have nothing of significance to talk about. But notice the opposite of that. The word's saying that you'll become that, like that which you worship. So when, that means that when I'm worshiping the Lord, when I'm trusting in him, when, when, when he is my God, that you and I become like him. Isn't that amazing to think about? And he makes us like him in his image. And as we worship him, we become a reflection of him. So let's worship the Lord. Become loving, become lively, become graceful by worshiping him. Notice he goes on in verse 14, Give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breast. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them because the evil of their deeds. I will drive them from my house and I will love them no more. And all their princes are rebellious and Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. So we see here that there will not, they will not be fruitful any longer. There will be a decline in birth rate, speaking, right, even um, of spiritual reproduction, a healthy church, 
What does it do? It reproduces. See, when you and I are healthy, you'll be sharing the gospel with your workplace, with your family. And others will come to know the Lord. But he's saying that there will be, they won't be fruitful anymore. Did you catch in verse 15, he said there, that I will drive them out. Remember in Genesis 3, verses 23, that's what the Lord did. When Adam and Eve um, sinned, when they fell, the Lord drove them out. God says here that I will drive my people out in judgment of their sin, in correction of them. And then finally, verse 17, my God will cast them away because they did not obey him and they shall be wanderers among the nations. So we see here that the Lord cut them off or cast them away. And you know that that's what sin does. Sin cuts us off from others. Man, you might not even have sinned against that person in particular, but when you and I, if we're in sin, what do we do? We isolate ourselves, right? I, I become cut off. I, I don't want to be discovered we, we, we become isolated. Not only that, but we, we, we're cut off from the Lord, right? Because now there's something between me and the Lord. And, and when we refuse to repent, when we refuse to confess it to the Lord, it stays that way. But aren't you thankful that we're in 2 Corinthians on Sunday mornings? Because we just read there in 2 Corinthians 5.18, there the Lord says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed us to the word of reconciliation. See, all of us, like Israel, have gone astray. We've all worshipped idols and we've all been cut off. But God has reconciled you in Christ. He's brought us back. He's redeemed us. And now as ones who have been reconciled, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Of course, it is reconciling when, when, there's, when we're at enmity or when we sin against a brother or sister. But what about even that one who might maybe even here tonight is cut off? They're, they're by themselves, man. Sin's taken over. And the Lord calls us to go to them, to restore them gently, right? To remind them of the truth of what God has, or Christ has done in reconciling them back to the Lord. But chapter 10, he continues on in the judgment and he says, Israel empties its vine. He brings forth fruit for himself according to the multitude of his fruit. He has increased the altars according to the bounty of his, of his land. They have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will bring down their altars and he will ruin their sacred pillars. Notice here again, the word uses the picture of Israel as a vineyard. And he says in verse one that Israel empties her vine. The, the translation actually means here that that um, there's, Israel is a fruitful vine. But notice the fruit is for himself. It's selfish fruit. How do we know that? Put a marker here and go to the left. Go to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, because it's important that we see the fruit that Israel was bringing forth at this time. In Isaiah chapter 5, starting with verse 1, it says, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. So he's speaking here of the vineyard. Uh, that's the picture. But uh, jump down to verse 7. 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, so here's the fruit. God's desired fruit was justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help, or or that literally means welling. So the fruit that the Lord desired was justice and righteousness, but the fruit that was coming forth from Israel, their fruitfulness was that of oppression and of welling because of of, of the sin that they were in. See, the Lord had planted them, but they used what God had given them for their own desires. And God's God's planted you, right? God's, God's created you. And he's blessed each of us. And what are we using with what he's given to us? Is it for our own desires? The Lord has given us life. He's given us opportunities today. What fruit is coming forth from our life? And notice here, verse 2 describes, this is why their fruit was unpleasing to the Lord. Because they have divided hearts, verse 2 tells us. Their heart is divided. See, they desired the Lord, but they wanted God in their life just in a certain capacity, right? Well, I, I want you to be Lord uh, when, when, when the doctor calls and, and, and I, you know, they, he says that um, there's cancer or when I lose my job and I'm in financial straits. But I don't want you to be Lord of, of my private thought life. I don't want you to be Lord in how I use the money that you've entrusted me with. I don't want you to be Lord of the words or what I watch with my eyes. See, their heart was divided. And our heart becomes divided when we say that we want God, but only we want him to be God in, in this capacity, in limiting him. Well, you know that Jesus said in Matthew 24 that no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And Elijah said this to Israel right in 1 Kings 18, 21. And Elijah came to the people and he said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal be God, follow him. See, if we're not serving God alone, then you're serving two masters. Just be honest. If if he's not God in all of my life, then I'm serving God in something, someone else, something else. See, the Lord will not share the throne of our hearts with another. We deceive ourselves if we think that we can follow the Lord and love something else at the same time. When we serve another, there is another love, there is another affection in our hearts. And what, in essence, we're doing is setting God aside. See, God won't share my affection because he is jealous for you. He loves you. Is your heart divided tonight? Man, turn. Just say, Lord, forgive me. He's gracious and he's merciful, waiting for us just to turn back to him. In verse 3, he goes on and he says, For now they say, we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Their judgment springs up like a hemlock in the furrows of the field. 
And so there's, there was no king because even uh, the kings murdered during Hosea's time, there were four kings murdered in 13 years. In verse 4, he's speaking there of their covenants. Right? They weren't keeping their words, so there would be all kind of lawsuits that were going on. Verse 5, he says, The inhabitants of Samaria fear because the calf of Beth-Avon, remember we talked about how Beth-Avon um, means house of vanity, where it, it, it physically is, is Bethel, the, supposed to be the house of God, but God uh, calls it the house of vanity because they set up a golden calf there. But notice, notice what they do because their calf is carried off. For the people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it, because its glory has departed from it. The idol also shall be carried to Assyria as a present for the king uh, Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of, of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. Also the high priest of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall grow on their altars, and they shall go, or excuse me, they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. So did you see that, that the people are mourning because their, their a calf idol is going to be carried away to Assyria? And aren't you thankful that we have a God, and that we serve a God who can't be carried away by another man? And it's interesting if you remember that, that they are mourning, they're shrieking, right? Can you imagine the loss this, this sound, they're shrieking because their idol was carried away. But remember that when the glory of God had departed, Ichabod, when the glory of God had departed previously, the nation wasn't shrieking. There was, there was a woman and, and, and a priest who, who passed over dead when the glory of God had departed, but not the nation as a whole. See, that speaks, it's a reflection of their heart. When their God was taken away, how did they respond? And that can be a, a warning sign for us, right? When a quote-unquote God in our life is carried away, when I'm shrieking and mourning and crying over it, has it become a, a God in a sense? But verse 9, O Israel, you have sinned in the, as in the days of Gibeah. We talked about that before. Uh, there they stood, the battle in Gibeah against their children, excuse me, against the children of iniquity. They did not overtake them. When it is my desire, I will chasten them. Peoples shall be gathered against them. When I bind them for two transgressions, Ephraim is as a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain. But I harnessed her fair neck. I will make Ephraim plow a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall break his clods. Sow for yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up the fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rains righteousness on you. Notice there, he, he's talking about um, a hardened ground and how it had to be broken up to bring forth fruit, to be planted, right, for a crop, for life to come. And he's saying that that's our hearts, that's their hearts. And sometimes that's, that's, what, happen, that's what happens to our hearts, right? It becomes hardened because of sin, because of rebellion. But the Lord says, Notice in verse 12, he says, for it is time to seek the Lord. And the idea is that now is the time to seek the Lord. Don't put it off another day. I mean, if our hearts have been hardened, continue to plow in the word of God. Continue to let the word of God 
go through us and, and break up those hardened places in our hearts. And you keep seeking him and the Lord will bring forth fruit. He will rain righteousness on you. Verse 13, you have plowed wickedness and you have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruits of lies because you trusted in your own ways in the multitude of your mighty men. Notice there he says that um, when you trust in your own ways, the result is, is wickedness, iniquity, the fruit, the end of it is lies, vanity. Verse 14, therefore, tumult shall rise among your people and all your fortresses shall be plundered. As Shalman plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. And so what's the Lord calling us today, right? We've, we've read all this. We see that God's judgment, God, God won't let sin go on. Even in his children, right? He, he corrects his children out of love for them. And, and where are we tonight? Do we have divided hearts? Have we set God aside? Are we found at home in the word of God? And we, we, you know, you might say, well, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not committing adultery or I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing this thing or that thing. But you see, all these are those small compromises, those small decisions, the, the habits of life, that when we set them aside, soon we find ourselves, we don't even realize it, way off course. That's what happened to Israel. And so, uh, you know, the cry of my heart even this morning as I was studying is, uh, I don't want the Lord to be um, just Lord in form. You know, I don't want to just say that I'm, I'm a Christian, or I, I don't want to just pray Lord or, or, or worship and say Lord, but I truly want him to be Lord in my heart. You know, and, and just ask him, Lord, whatever it is that you want, whatever you want me to rid my life of, whatever you're calling to me to do, I... Lord, I, you're, I want you to truly be Lord. And I want to say yes to you and submit my life to you. And, and I pray that we would do that as a body here. Let's, let's repent where, where repentance needs to happen. And experience, um, the, like, the, like he says in verse 12, the, the reign of righteousness on you. And so, Father, we thank you tonight that you do reign in righteousness, God. You will always do what's right for us. Lord, whether we um, can understand it sometimes or, or we see it, we, we, don't always, we don't always understand, but I thank you, God, that you love us enough, Lord, not to let us continue in sin. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would continue, um, even tonight after, um, as we just talk here, God, that we would be willing to share those things that you're showing us. Or just being honest with one another, that we could encourage one another, or to maybe even hold each other accountable in a healthy and in a biblical way. Lord, and I, I just pray, God, for any hearts here tonight that have been hardened by sin or, or, or whatever it may be, that you would break that fallow ground up, or that you would, you would soften hearts. Lord, we know it has to be a work of your Spirit. So we just give those hearts, those lives to you. And Lord, we thank you that you alone are God. 
and you alone, Lord, um, desire worship, God. We can't worship another. God, I thank you um, just for your love for us and even being willing to correct us. And so, Lord, would you um, just have your way as we go forth tonight, Lord. Give us opportunities to share with others, God, that we could bring forth fruit, that many would come to know you. And we love you, and we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And we all prayed this and said, amen.